Having lifted up our praises to God, we now turn to hear from God in his word. The scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 311. We're going to read verses 1 through 19 of this chapter together. 2 Kings 5, starting in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, and he may know that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near him and said to him, My father, it is... A great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, And I bow myself in the house of Rimmon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. This is the word of the Lord.
Let's bow our hearts as we ready ourselves to hear from him. Father, we are still before you now and ask that you would enable us to see you as you are, that the busyness and the worries and the concerns or the thoughts or the pretense of the day would slide to uh, one side and that we would see Jesus. Father, I ask that you would uh, rule and overrule the words of my lips that all that is said would be in accord with the gospel and that uh, we might be helped during this time. Come and do a work of grace by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. An achievement addict is no different to any other kind of addict. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol, they abuse their own lives. These are the words of journalist and author Harriet Rubin, quoted in Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, which has a very helpful chapter on our text. Achievement addicts driven by the idol of success can be seen everywhere we look. In the sports world, we think of those who, for them, the the need to succeed was so powerful that they turned to performance-enhancing drugs. We think of Lance Armstrong. We think of Alex Rodriguez. We think of many others on that list. In the business world, the need to succeed was so powerful that we saw a plethora of suicides after the financial crash. The acting CFO of Freddie Mac, who hung himself in his own basement. Chief executive at Sheldon Good who shot himself in his car or the executive at Bear Stearns who threw himself from the 29th floor of his office building. Being unable to handle the fact that they had not succeeded, they turned to such desperate measures. And the need to succeed is seen in, in many ways in our culture at large, whether it's through increased levels of workaholism or cosmetic surgery or anxiety disorders, uh, various attempts to live up to a certain standard of success. But of course, this achievement, addiction, and this idol of success hits a little closer to home in our own lives as well, and perhaps especially in our lives here in this town. Here are nine signs that success has become too important to you. I'm sure none of them will resonate with you, maybe just your neighbor. First, you find it vital that other people think highly of you. You just find it vital that other people think highly of you. Your reputation is an idol. They must think well of you. You must be respected. You must be well thought of. And you can't handle the fact that someone doesn't have the best things to say about you. It eats away at you and just destroys your day. Two, you sacrifice to work unreasonably long hours for an unreasonably long time. Of course, we all have seasons where the hours pile up, but if the season has become your life, the busy weeks turning into busy months, turning into busy years, and you are prepared to forgo all else in order that you might succeed in your vocation, it's possible that success has become too important to you. Three, you're a control freak, the micromanager. It's so important that things go well that you can't trust anybody else to do anything for you. You feel like you have to oversee the entire 
process. Four, you're a perfectionist. Uh, Do you spend forever composing that short email? Uh, Do you find yourself to be strangely, passively disappointed if your child doesn't get an A? Maybe the success has become too important to you. Five, you overload and overcommit yourself on a regular basis, unable to say no to anyone. At six, you have a really hard time admitting that you find something difficult. At seven, you avoid doing things that you won't excel at. Turns out you're pretty successful at nearly everything you do because anything that you might not be successful at, you have kept at arm's length. Eight, you hate to be beaten at anything. How does the family game of Monopoly go down in your house? Nine, you don't enjoy success before looking ahead to the next challenge. As soon as you've succeeded in one way, it's like a high, it's like a drug that drives you to the next challenge that you might succeed and find that rush again. Today in our text, we're introduced to a man who demonstrates that the idol of success is not a new phenomenon. A man who experiences God's grace and then finds that it is grace, not success, that makes all the difference. Let's dive into this text together. Starting in verse 1, where we're introduced to Naaman, who is a great man with a great problem. And his resume is impressive. See how verse 1 piles up the accolades. He is commander of the army, a great man, highly favored, used by God, victorious in battle, a mighty man of valor. He is this character of, of integrity and the fighting skills of Chuck Norris. He's just this amazing guy who seems to have everything wrapped up into one. Position, esteem, adulation, bravado, success. Naaman is the man. And yet, added to everything is the one thing that will make him nothing. Leprosy. But he was a leper. He wakes up one morning with an itch, and the itch turns into a spot that tells Naaman everything he doesn't want to know about his future. He knows that his body will disintegrate, that his, his skin will crack and then rot and then fall off in stages, that his hands will become like gnarled stumps and his feet will no longer carry him and his face will be grossly defigured, disfigured and that inexorably he will slowly by slowly rot to the core, dying one inch at a time. And not only this, but society will forsake him. First, because leprosy is grotesque to the senses, the the sight and smell of putrid flesh. But more than that, because leprosy is also highly contagious. And so Naaman knows that his suffering will be multiplied as he is cast out of the marriage bed and then cast out of the family home and then ultimately cast out of the city to die alone. This national hero has become a dead man walking. National hero has become a dead man walking. And in this, Naaman shows us a picture of ourselves. Because no matter how much you have achieved, and no matter how much you are achieving, no matter how much you will achieve in the future, we're all dead men walking. This is true physically, of course. Every one of us will die and go to dust. Benjamin Franklin, nothing in life is certain except death and taxes. 
prompted uh, one anthropologist, Ashley Montague, to comment that the idea, therefore, is to die young as late as possible. (laughs) Die young as late as possible, because we know that this will be our fate. But perhaps more significantly, this is also a picture of ourselves spiritually. Why? Because every single one of us has an itch that has become a spot, a spot that the Bible calls sin. The Bible is is very clear and unflinchingly direct to communicate that there is something gnarled, there's something cracked, there's something grotesque within the soul of man. It's sin. It's what explains the tragedies of our day, be it warfare, murder, adultery, abortion, rape. But it's also what explains the tragedy of our own lives, the anger, the self-centeredness, the impurity, the guilt, the shame. I remember the shock of first realizing that this was true of me. It's an unmasking horror, like Naaman must have felt when he saw his first spot. The Bible teaches that there's an inexorable rot inside us all, and like Naaman's leprosy, it casts us outside the city, but outside the heavenly city, where we'll die alone. Here's the point that I'm driving to. We need to understand our desperate need of God's grace. We need to understand our desperate need of God's grace. See, at first, Naaman doesn't really get it. He understands that he has a problem, but he thinks that he can fix it. He's been successful all his life, and now he thinks, I just need to channel this success toward finding a cure. And he does this in three interesting ways. First of all, Naaman thinks that his power might save him. In verses 2 and 3, this wee girl has sent him to find the prophet Elisha, but Naaman is not the kind of guy who deals with prophets. He's big time, and he wants to deal with the king. So instead of going to the prophet, he goes, verse 4, to the king of Syria and gets this letter of recommendation. And he takes this letter in verse 6 to the king of Israel, rolls up to the palace with his entourage, swaggers over to the king and says, you probably know who I am. I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. Um, but just in case, here's a letter that lays out my credentials. He thinks that power and prestige will grant him access to a cure, access to a solution. In case that doesn't work, Naaman has a second plan, which is thinking that his money will save him. Look at verse 5, where he shows up with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. He shows up at the palace with about a million dollars in cash and a sweet wardrobe, thinking if the money doesn't talk, then you know the designer labels definitely will. These should be sufficient resources to purchase the services of any faith healer. He thinks his money and his wealth can buy him a solution. Third, if those don't work, he's going to fall back on good old-fashioned hard work. In verse 11, he takes great offense at being told to do such a simple thing in order that he might be healed. Wash in the waters of the Jordan, he is offended by the notion. I'm sure he would have been quite happy if Elisha had told him to slay a dragon or rescue a princess, but he takes offense at being underestimated in this way. He thinks that his abilities and hard work can achieve a solution. 
So you understand what's happening here. Naaman understands that he has a problem. But he doesn't understand that there's nothing he can do about it. He doesn't understand his desperate need of God's grace. And so he does, <laughs> he does what DC people do. He pulls some strings and he drops some names and he spends a lot of money and he readies himself to work hard. He approaches God like a salesman saying, look, let's make a deal. I've got a bargain for you. Let me make you an offer that you can't refuse. And of course, we know that we do the same thing. Prevailing view, of course, of, of Christianity in our day is that good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. So if you do enough good things and avoid enough bad things, then God will give you a, a cosmic reward. It is a quid pro quo relationship where you get what you deserve. And that's the way that Naaman is operating here. Unfortunately, or perhaps we should say fortunately, that's not how the God of the Bible works. It's just not how the God of the Bible works. Doing the right thing, supposedly keeping your end of the bargain, does not put our God on a leash. The creator of heaven and the creator of earth owes you nothing, and he never will. He is not a God that can be put in our debt, not a God that can be networked, bought, manipulated. And our efforts to earn our own salvation are as futile as Naaman's efforts to, to, to heal his leprosy through power, money, or hard work. Like Naaman, we have a desperate problem, and we are unable to heal ourselves. We need to understand our need of God's grace. It takes us to our second point, though, and the second thing we see about grace in this text, and that's that we need to understand not only our desperate need of God's grace, but also God's rich provision of grace. God's rich provision of grace. Naaman experiences grace in two ways. First of all, in how he is brought to God. Naaman experiences grace in how he is brought to God. Remember how all this got started back in verse 2 through the kindness of his servant girl. This wee girl who has been carried away in a Syrian raid, ripped from her family, at best seeing her loved ones sold into slavery, at worst perhaps seeing them murdered before her very eyes, now finds herself at the very bottom of the Syrian social hierarchy. She is a foreigner. She is a slave. She is young. She is a woman. She has nothing in that culture and day to commend herself in any way. She is destitute, completely dependent upon others. And who's responsible for this suffering? Who's responsible for her being far from her loved ones in this sorry state? Well, the armies of Syria. Who commands the armies of Syria? Naaman himself. The one who has inflicted so much suffering upon her is now suffering himself. And she is the only one who knows how he might be healed. And so what does she do with this information? Does she keep it to herself, smiling and enjoying uh, the death march as he gets uh, closer and closer to the grave? No, she speaks up to ensure that this life-saving information reaches Naaman's ears. For Naaman, there'd be no healing without uh, this uh, grace given him uh, by this suffering servant. 
Second, we also see that Naaman experiences grace in how he's actually healed by God. And I find the interaction with Elisha again to be somewhat humorous. We learned before that Elisha has obviously not been briefed in how you go about uh, sort of diplomatic negotiations or how you welcome men of great honor or importance. Verse 10, Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. Uh, Naaman rolls up with his entourage. He has horses, he has chariots, he has a thousand, he has a million dollars in his pocket and he has some Gucci summer wear folded nicely in a case and it doesn't even get him past the welcome mat. Elisha's inside reading a paper and sends his messenger boy out to see one of the most powerful men in the world. Then, verse 11, Elisha doesn't perform as Naaman had hoped. Verse 11, Naaman says, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Naaman wants some hocus pocus. He wants some magic tricks. He wants an abracadabra. He wants some intrigue, some drama. And he expected that the servant of the God would come out and heal him in this dramatic way. Instead, Elisha gives him what? Verse 10. An obscenely simple solution. Go and wash in the Jordan. Naaman takes offense. (laughs) Right, I'm a leper. What do I need? A bath. Sure, that's really going to help. And a bath in your filthy waters. When I have much nicer rivers at home, you think this is going to help me in any way. For this, uh, all in all, this was a powerfully underwhelming encounter for Naaman. What's going on here? What's the point? Elisha is highlighting that healing power belongs solely to God. That Naaman can't earn healing through his power, through his money, through his abilities, and that Elisha himself can't bestow healing through a face-to-face meeting or a magic trick or some ritual. Naaman must wash and trust that the Lord will heal him. And through the kind words of a servant, he agrees to go. Interesting that through um, the, the young Syrian girl, through Elisha's servant, through his own servant, Naaman, his powerful man, is directed at every point by the lowest of the low in that day. It will go to wash, he does seven times. He gets in, he gets out, he drives himself, he gets back in. He gets out, he drives himself, he gets back in. And as he rises the seventh time, we read verse 14 that his skin is restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. God provides healing grace. Why? Because it's just the kind of God he is. It's just the kind of God that he is. And again, Naaman's story is our story. For us, there is no salvation without a suffering servant and the grace of God. Jesus called the ultimate suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is not carried off in a raid, but he does leave his father's house to be that life-saving message that we need. And the God of grace doesn't give us faith to wash in the Jordan, but gives us faith to wash in the blood of Christ shed for us on the cross. The gospel says that the spot of sin cannot be cleansed by your power. It cannot be cleansed by your money. It cannot be cleansed by your hard work. It can only be cleansed if you follow the suffering servant and wash in his blood. 
hard for us to accept, like it was hard for Naaman to accept, because it's a death blow to our pride. We come in weakness to our God, with nothing to commend us, seeking only grace. We're brought to God and healed by grace. In light of our desperate need of grace, we need to recognize God's rich provision of grace. One more thing before we move on from the life of Naaman, and that's to see some of the practical implications of grace. We need to understand the practical implications of grace. We see this in verses 15 through 19 and really get a handle upon how grace really did change Naaman, changed him in powerful ways. First of all, grace changes how we feel about God. Look at verse 15 and then jump to verse 17. Naaman says, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, But in Israel, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. Staggering statement from the lips of a pluralistic Gentile. One of the ways in which you know you've experienced grace is that it changes your view of God. It changes your view of God. You now know that he is the only true God and that you will worship him all the days of your life. That even if you wanted to deny his existence, you couldn't. Why? Because you've tasted and you've seen. And this is a powerful thing in the life of a believer because the trouble comes and we have dry seasons and we have spiritual lows. And in those moments, we need to look back on our experience of God and remember that we have indeed tasted and seen that he's good. I know myself in in some, you know, just dry times, uh, considering amidst the doubts and the fears and, and realizing, no, I can no more deny God's existence than I can deny the existence of my wife. Why? Because I've experienced them both. An experience of grace changes how you think about God. Second thing we see in Naaman is that it changes not only how he thinks about God, but it also changes how he thinks about himself. Five times in verses 15 through 19, he refers to himself as your servant. This is quite a change from the resume-building antics of the early chapter. And this is another way in which you know that you've experienced grace, that it changes your view of yourself. You're no longer quite as wrapped up in your own self-importance. You're no longer quite as wrapped up in your own head. You no longer take yourself quite as seriously as you used to. Your focus shifts away from yourself and onto other people. And this is a real sign of gospel maturity, that you are thinking less of yourself and thinking more of others, that your time and your energy and your resources and whatever power, money, abilities you may have are marshaled for the good of those around you. You consider yourself to be their servant. I wonder in this power-hungry town how it is we are doing in that regard. Are we growing in this grace of service? Third thing we see is that grace changes how you feel about God, changes how you feel about others, about about yourself, sorry. But it also changes how you feel about money. Look with me in verse 15, where Naaman says, except now a present from your servant. Now, it's important to remember that at this point, Naaman has already been healed. He is already walking around with flesh, we read, that was like a little child. His his cheeks are, are, are as smooth as a baby's. So he's no longer trying to 
earn his favor. Rather, he is responding to the grace that he has been given with a pretty dramatic generosity. Now, Elisha is wise and doesn't accept the gift because he doesn't want there to be even an appearance that this was brought about by his resources. But the point stands nonetheless that when you have been given salvation for free, it changes how you think about giving freely to others. That generosity is the mark of a believer. And again, I want us just to test ourselves. Consider how is it that we're doing in this regard. Not that we might doubt whether we have experienced grace, but that we might challenge ourselves and test ourselves. Are we responding to the generosity we have, been, we have received by extending the same generosity to others? Grace changes how you feel about God, about yourself, about money. And lastly, grace changes how you feel about your work. Your work. Look with me at verse 18. Here Naaman says, In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. Naaman is saying, going to this temple, this temple of this pagan god, it's, it's part of my job description. It comes with the territory. I can't really avoid it. And I don't think we should jump on Naaman and somehow think, ah, here he is already being guilty of some sort of compromise because Elisha is quite happy with his suggestion. He says, verse 19, go in peace. Rather, the point Naaman's making is, listen, I want you to know I'll still serve my country, but I won't worship our gods. I'll still do my job, but it won't be my idol. I will be kneeling uh, on the the dirt of Israel, worshiping uh, the true God there. And it's very intriguing, isn't it, that uh, though his occupation puts him in a potentially compromising position, he, he doesn't quit, he doesn't resign, but he finds bold and creative ways to honor God in the midst of that very employment. A powerful word that in this town especially could use uh, its own sermon. We're out of time for today. Here's the summary. Sermon in a sentence. Grace, grace, grace. We need it. We've got it. Let's live it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again we thank you for the the color with which you communicate, the stories you give that resonate in our hearts and souls, whether it's depicting our sin like a rotting skin condition, whether it's depicting our salvation like the cleansing uh, of the waters to make us whole, whether it's showing us how to live in light of your grace, We are grateful for your word and how it teaches us. So, Father, we we pray that these truths would be taken hold in our hearts and taken hold in, in our congregation, taken hold in our church and having great ripple effects from there. That we would see, Lord, there is no one who needs grace more than we do. And that we would see there is no one who has received more grace than we have. And that we would seek to follow you with glad and obedient hearts, living out the implications of the grace that is ours. We pray these things in Jesus' perfect and mighty name.
Amen.